Hello, and welcome to episode five of Therapist on Therapist. I am your host, Kimberly Anderson. Today, I get the amazing opportunity to interview Janelle Cubbage. Janelle is a licensed clinical professional counselor. She is working with Anchor Counseling Centers in Maryland. We have her and her amazing sidekick today. We'll learn more about the sidekick in just a second. But first, I have to shut up so we can get to the interview. Let's do that. Thanks for listening. So good morning and welcome to Therapist on Therapist with Janelle, the tattooed counselor. And Janelle, we have to address the elephant in the room slash the chihuahua in the room. Who are we talking to? This is my uh, coworker, Ellie. Um, She regularly joins me on all of my meetings and my telehealth sessions. Oh my gosh. Ellie, does Ellie howl? Like if I, if I started howling, would Ellie start howling? <laughs> Maybe. Um, she definitely has picked up on the language that we use to end meetings and end sessions. And she usually gets really excited then and starts barking. Really? It's um, been the, um, I guess, like my new sign off. All of my clients laugh now because she realizes that's when we can get up and go outside and all of that. Oh, so there are some subtle cues that are going on at the end of the session. What are those cues? I'm super curious about what the dog's picking up on. Um, I think probably uh, like, okay, well, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about today or anything that we didn't get to address? Great good work today. I'll see you next week. Those kinds of things. Do you think it's tone or do you think it's words? I think it's probably both. Okay. Um, so now we're just messing with the dog. Yes. She's like, you can't fool me. You guys just started. (laughs) (laughs) I have recently seen the talking dogs on TikTok and I'm so in love with the talking dogs. (laughs) Okay, so give me, maybe we can just talk like maybe three or four or five minutes about you. Tell me about you. Um, What do I need to know about you? Well, that is a very open-ended question. Um, (laughs) I grew up in a very rural county in Delaware. Okay. Um, And I, in high school, I took an AP psychology class and also a criminal justice class. So in senior year, I was like, I want to be a psychologist or a homicide detective or an athletic trainer. That's quite a diversity. It it is. And so um, when I was reflecting on this um, in the, uh, my personal statement, when I applied to the program that I'm in now, Um, I was like, what ties all of those together? And what makes me interested in public health? And then I realized it's that I really enjoy understanding all of the different factors that come together that influence who we are, how we developed, what we do. And piecing that together is what's fascinating to me and something Uh that I really enjoy. So I'm glad that I finally figured that out because I was reflecting on it and I was just like, what in the world was going on? Personal training, Uh, psychology, criminal justice. All right. Yeah. So I ended up going with psychology. I went with that because it came naturally to me. Um, 
And I was like, okay, well, that will make college easy. <laughs> oh, wait a second. So that's the secret to making college easy? Go with, go with what comes naturally to you. All right. I don't, don't, that's not official advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I went to undergrad. I was a first gen college student. So congratulations. Thank you. Huge. I didn't know what I was really doing. And I was really grateful to have uh, professors who really believed in me and were able to guide me. Um, so I minored in sociology. So I think that's also what got me interested in some of the higher level stuff. Okay. Um, and then I completed an internship at um, a psychiatric hospital. So we Oh, were... holy crap. Now we just get interesting. Yeah. So because we were... I, I do not have any experience in that. Okay, dish. We got so that's this. what I thought that I wanted to do work with people who were seriously mentally ill. Uh -huh. um, and that's what I wanted. I wanted no parts of private practice. I think I viewed private practice as like rich people coming to bitch about their problems. And I was like, I don't like, I want to work with the people who really need help. Yeah. So I went and did that internship. It was really profound and I still felt that way. But then I realized like I need to go to grad school and I don't know why it took until then <laughs> for that to click. Okay, So you were working in a, in a psychiatric hospital with a bachelor's degree. So we weren't working. It was like a um, a mini semester program that our okay. Psych okay. program had with that hospital. So it allowed us to go in for our winter term. And then we were able to shadow the um, psychologists there. And we learned a ton about um, the hospital system, assessments, those kinds of things okay. um and we were able to be on the unit and interact with patients but we weren't providing like treatment or anything gotcha like i did not ask you about your letters l c p c yeah so some states have lcpcs some have lpcs um so we're licensed clinical professional counselors okay lpc is licensed professional counselor so i think that just varies um depending on the state does it drive you crazy all these different letters that we all have yeah because i feel like at least with social workers there's some consensus and standard across the board for the most part um and that's not the case with counseling so it's a lot to keep up with okay also wh what are you drinking we got to know what we're drinking i'm drinking coffee in my atlanta mug how do you like your coffee? Good. So I <laughs> you like it good. <laughs> I recently found a fruity pebbles creamer. Okay, wait a second. Okay, keep going. I needed to just pause for a minute. Fruity it's pebbles like creamer. Very warm, um, fond memories of childhood, but in my adult beverage. So it's a it's the crossover I'm living for. Nice. Uh, I just made some strong medium roast with some whole milk in it. Mm -hmm. And my intersectional coffee from my youth is I put in two spoonfuls of hot cocoa powder. Oh, that sounds good. I'm going to have to try that. It's really good. 
It's really good. Okay, so coffee. Are you the therapist? That's that, my favorite that, color, by the way. Oh, like, teal? Yeah, yeah, Tiffany blue. All of my stuff in my kitchen and everywhere is that color. So. And you have that color in the painting behind you, just a, a shade of I that. Do. Yeah. So you got your bachelor's at a school in Delaware. And so actually in Maryland. Oh, Maryland. Um, okay. Yep. And then I realized like, oh crap, I need to go to grad school. So then I got a book to study the GRE and I wanted to go to a PsyD program. I had my eyes set on Nova Southeastern um, to do forensic psych. Um, and then I psyched myself out. I was like, there's no way I'm going oh, no. to be able to do well enough on the GRE to get into a doctorate program. So I was talking to my advisor and I love him. He, uh, he's one of my professors that constantly challenged the status quo. He's my only professor that taught us about the myth that chemical imbalances cause mental illness. Um, he had us read uh, books written criticizing the field and the harm that the field has caused. Um, and he taught a drugs in the mind course. He's just, he was very progressive and did not care about the confines or like expectations or the pretty side of the field. He just explored it all. So I really appreciate him for that. I love that. So I was talking to him and he was like, you don't need a doctorate to be a therapist. And I was like, I don't. And he was like, no, and we have a program here, apply to the program. Um, so I did. And then I got my master's in clinical mental health counseling while working full time. So I started out my career in juvenile justice wow. um, as a case manager. And then I moved to a community program um, which was a little different in that our goal was to keep kids in the community. And then that grant funding ended and we were facing layoffs and you were getting laid off in the order of seniority. So I had been with the program for three months. So I was first. Oh, up. bummer. Um, but that's ultimately what led me to suicide prevention. So I was frantically looking for a job suicide prevention had not necessarily been on my radar. Um, and I came across the job for a suicide prevention program manager uh, for the Maryland National Guard. And wow. I applied, I didn't think I would get it, um, but then I did. And I jumped headfirst in learning everything that I could about suicide and military culture. Thankfully uh -huh. my stepdad um, was retired from the army. So that helped also in just kind of um, familiarizing myself with the norms and such of military culture. And then- um, Which is its own separate culture group. It really is. Uh -huh. it's, it's so different. And I don't think that I realized how ingrained that had become in me until I transitioned back to my current job in the civilian world. And I was like doing things and <laughs> like in meetings when a higher up would come in, you would stand up when they entered the room and then like when they sit down, you can sit down. So I would do that at meetings and they would stare at me like, what? 
what are you doing? You don't, you don't have to do that here. Was it, and a, pa- I was like, was it like a Pavlovian response? It was. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, and then just kind of like lingo and, and the way that you talk is just, it's very different, like, than the civilian side. Do you miss so, long acronyms? Long acronyms. Um, we have bluff, bottom line up front. So like you don't, you just say the, the point, you get to it, you're direct, and then you provide all the detail. Whereas that's not the case. It's like backwards in the civilian world where you do all of the niceties and all of that stuff. And then um, somewhere nestled in that long paragraph or email is the the one thing that you need. The nugget, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that was an interesting experience. Um, and then I transitioned to work for government. That's where I am now. And I'm also working um, in private practice as a trauma therapist. And I was I was done with school after I graduated with my master's. And <laughs> I got to my position now and I was like, hmm. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, my therapist training certainly helps with suicide. Sure. Um, what I didn't get in my program was a lot of data, strategic planning, how to analyze all of that stuff. Maybe I should think about taking a course or getting a certificate or going back to school. Swear, I did not tell anyone this. And one of my colleagues was called me one day was like, hey, can I ask you a personal question? I was like, sure. She was like, are you still thinking about going back to school for public health? And I was like, Holly, how did you know this? I did not tell a single soul. Um, So I don't, the universe had plans, I guess. Holly and the universe have got a relationship. Yeah. Um, So she told me she works at Johns Hopkins and she's a career suicide researcher. Um, and she told me to apply to their uh, MPH program because they had a fellowship program where they find people working in public health roles that didn't have access to uh, traditional public health training. Um, so they give you a full scholarship. Oh my goodness. And wow. So I applied and I am at Hopkins studying violence prevention and earning my MPH. Wow. What a plot twist. I know. First gen college student working on your second master's, helping communities, helping military veterans and active duty. I... I got to tell you, this whole therapy journey for me has been so awesome. And then the whole TikTok mental health community has been such a lovely surprise and just a blessing to meet everybody. I mean, only you're my fourth interview as of today, but just being able to tap into their little 59 second slices of their specialty it's and every therapist I talk to on TikTok says exactly the same thing. It's just such an amazing, amazing community. Okay, so I like to do these one take 
unscripted. We're going to break this one into half because of scheduling, and that's okay. I'd like to do them unscripted, and I want to make sure we cover at least three things, and okay. I'll let I'll let you decide the order. Suicide prevention, tattoos, <laughs> and food. I that order is fine to me. Okay. I, tattoos and suicide prevention can be interchangeable. Perfect. Me too. Let's jump in there. Okay. And we'll end with food. Cool. Oh my god, this is gonna be so good. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, so suicide prevention. My journey through that, and this is not about me, but I just want to get you kind of maybe up to speed about where I am at with this. Somewhere along the line during my master's program, suicide prevention became very important to me. And I think it was the day that I learned my first girlfriend from college. I'm sorry, my first girlfriend from high school died by suicide. Mm. And I sat in that class and our classes were six hours long. And I sat in that cl class for six and I learned at the beginning of class. I sat in this, that class for six hours in complete silence, just reviewing. And I've been working with her. I've been working with her, you know, her wife. I've been working with her former wife and some other people that we had in common, some friends we had in common, trying to keep her alive. And ultimately she chose um, not to keep that path. And that day that we lost her, I was so profoundly moved and did some reflecting on my own journey with suicidality. I thought this is gonna be a thing I need to learn about way more than I know about now. And in graduate school, as you know, you get a basic understanding. You might get the Stanley Brown suicide plan training and, and some other stuff. You didn't even get that. Okay. Suicide in my grad program was primarily taught as a legal and ethical issue. Wow. And that's one of my biggest qualms with a lot of grad programs. Yeah. The other place I learned to reframe my, so I grew up in a very conservative, high demand religion who had very negative feelings and damn, damnation, hell and damnation feelings about suicide. When I started working at the Native American Health Center in Sacramento, I had to unlearn that because culturally, the group that I was working with there had a much different approach to suicide and, and suicide prevention. So I had to unlearn shaming language I had to unlearn guilting language and I had to kind of even honor it as part of a cultural tradition in a way that was completely foreign and honestly very unfamiliar to me. Mm -hmm. And so then I dove into this training and that training and QPR and all the intersectional stuff with, with uh, the different communities I was part of. And now I find myself, even as a baby therapist in a very strange kind of a role where I will be, I teach an intersectional suicide education and prevention course, CE class for therapists that cover LGBTQ, um, race, eating disorders, autism, um, uh, conversion therapy survivors, uh, high demand religion. Um, what else is in that intersectionality? I think that that covers all of it. And so I've been trying to gain as much competency in each of those areas that I can to make sure the training I'm giving is not only accurate, but the most up-to-date and, and current information. So AFSP has provided me with a lot of information. AAS has provided me with a lot of information specifically around autism. 
Uh, I'm on the Utah um, Division of um, Public Services. Uh, it's a statewide committee for suicide prevention. I'm on the LGBTQ work group. So I'm getting information from the state of Utah that's current. So trying to make sure the data that I share is the best I can. And then what's amazing about learning your content and learning, listening to you talk about suicide. And isn't it lovely that we can even have an open conversation, not on TikTok. <laughs> Thank you, TikTok censors. And then I start learning about what you're sharing. I'm like, wait a second, this is information I've never heard before. So then my ears go up and I'm like, okay, Janelle's somebody I have to pay attention to. She has stuff I need to know to make my presentations and my education even better. So that's my background. I'm gonna pitch it to you to share whatever you want about suicide prevention. Oh, I also have a semicolon tattoo and we can talk about tattoos and suicide prevention at the same time. So I don't even wanna ask you any questions cause I don't wanna shoehorn the conversation in any direction. What can you share that we need to know? Um, I think the first thing probably is how common thoughts of suicide are and that uh, thoughts of suicide are not one state. They very much occur on a spectrum from very passive, like, I wonder what would happen if I drove my car off this bridge or just like not wanting to be here, not wanting to exist anymore, right. to very active uh, thoughts. Hi, Ellie, come here, baby. To very active thoughts, like actually wanting to um, and thinking about how you would do it. Um, so I think that's the first thing people should really know and understand is that it, people tend to go to the latter. Like, oh, if someone's thinking about suicide, they, they have a plan, they're gonna do it. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think when I was reflecting on my own experience, um, and what drew me to suicide prevention? Like, why did the universe bring me here? Like, and why did I take it up? Like, why did it become mm -hmm. a passion of mine? Um, so in therapy, I work, um, I do IFS. Some, okay. uh, so I do parts work. And I think that it was an innate part of me that um, was drawing me to that because of my own lived experience with it. So in my learning about suicide, which I, it was totally unconscious to me at the time when I first started out in it, I think that I learned a lot about myself. Um, and then it started making sense why I was able to empathize and see suicide differently than a lot of other people. Um, so it brings me to another point of how common it is. So we know people report um, that one in 20 people at any given time are thinking about suicide. I think that number is probably higher um, because I think it's underreported. And I also think, again, people tend to think thinking about suicide is like, oh, I'm going to kill myself versus I really don't want to be here anymore kind of thing. So the other thing that I think I like to share about suicide prevention is that suicide prevention is not just sharing hotline numbers. 
Um, one of my biggest frustrations with the field is that we are super hyper-focused on the crisis um, services aspect of suicide prevention. And suicide prevention really occurs in three phases. So there's prevention, intervention, and postvention. So intervention is kind of where we're stuck as a field. That is providing crisis services, keeping people who are suicidal safe, um, which is suicide prevention. We're trying to help them stay here. Um, and then postvention is providing care to people who have survived attempts right. or people who have lost loved ones to suicide. Right. All of these aspects are very important. I think as a field, we don't focus on prevention enough. And I'd really like to see us move the needle to focus on upstream prevention. How can we create a world people want to live in and stay in so that we can reduce the incidence of thoughts of suicide and crisis to begin with. I think a lot of times the answer people jump to is, oh my gosh, suicide's a problem. Let's fund hotlines and mobile crisis teams, which they are an important aspect of suicide prevention. They are necessary, but instead of trying to go to the root of the issue, we're just kind of throwing more resources um, at an intervention phase where we could be thinking about how do we prevent people from getting here in the first place? So you're very much like I am. I don't like treating symptoms. I like addressing causes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm working with, uh, One Community Health in Queens, uh, HIV, AIDS, um, sex workers, trans, Latina popula Latinx population. And one of the things we're working on there is uh, interventions or that prevention stuff that is suicide prevention, such as housing security, food, access to mental health care, access to physical health care, uh, access to needles, needle exchanges, the things that that community is going to be looking for anyway that can reduce the friction reduce the stress on their lives and make, like you said, a life worth living. So those preventative things, I think can be as non-traditional as coffee date, a phone call, a Zoom chat, an interview with a suicide education specialist, anything. My big thing right now is building and finding community. Mm -hmm. If you can't find it, then create it. If you can't create it, then find it or find somebody who can aim you towards community as a method of suicide prevention. I do like the non-crisis teams. I recently had a client in crisis and I asked the non-police the non crisis team to respond. We had an excellent outcome and that client is, is um, back on track to, towards thriving again. Maybe share, if you can, some of the things that you might consider prevention that could be less traditional. Sure. Um, so I think the building community is really important. Like you said, social connectedness is vital. We're humans, we have a need for social connectedness. One thing that I think we don't talk about enough is the othering and minoritization of groups in our country mm. based on race, um, like, um, sorry, based on race, 
gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, things like that. So we intentionally other groups, we just had a president who was very racist, homophobic, transphobic, um, and especially to have those views espoused, see so many people in the country support that and vote for more of it. Um, on top of these people having power to legislate discrimination in at a federal law. level. Yeah, I think we don't talk enough about the impacts of that yeah. and how that hurts social connectedness because you're you're telling people that they are not worthy you're sending the message that they don't deserve basic human rights you're excluding them you're um, creating a mechanism for them to be predisposed to violence from others and you know when we look at joiner's model uh, perceived belonging belongingness that's important um, to keeping people safe from suicide and all of those actions, especially the ones that we've seen um, very recently, there have been really high level publicized incidents of excluding people and not creating a sense of belongingness. Can you go over Joyner's model quickly for those who may not be familiar with it? Sure. So. Very quickly, he posits that um, three factors come together um, to create um, the capability for suicide. So uh, perceived belongingness, so not feeling like you fit in with others or that you have a group that you really belong to or identify with. Um, perceived burdensomeness, so feeling like a burden to those around you, which is a common thing that I can touch on after this. Um, when those come together, um, then the desire for suicide can uh, be produced. And then um, if that desire is present and the person acquires the capability for suicide, that's when either death or a suicide attempt is likely to occur. Okay. I talk about that model in a slightly different way I talk about this kind of trifecta for suicidality. I talk about hopelessness, mm -hmm. helplessness, and feeling like a burden. And if those three things are together, and then it jumps into a very similar process to the one you describe, if they're prone to impulsivity and they have a means, method, and intent, now we really are creating a kind of a perfect deadly storm for an attempt or a completion. Yeah, I think hopelessness is a really important one too if you don't feel like things are going to get better and um you don't really see a way out or other mm. things that you can do to throw at the stressors that you're dealing with um that's that's really tough yeah talk about the burdensomeness because that is the thing that that your model and my kind of philosophy have in common yeah so i think that a common thing I hear is people think that suicide is selfish and even 
people who are well-meaning and trying to help someone who's thinking about suicide will be like, well, what about your family? What about your friends? Like, how do you think they're going to feel? And there's this perception that people who are thinking about suicide aren't thinking about their loved ones, but they are just not in the way that people who aren't suicidal are thinking that they right. should think about their loved ones. Yeah. People who are in that space, they feel like their loved ones would be better off without them here. Um, and they feel like a burden on their loved ones. So I think that's like something important to consider that one saying what, what would your loved ones think or feel, how would your friends think or feel if you did this is not the helpful comment that many people think that it is. Thank you for saying that. I commit to all of my clients that I will never use shame or guilt in any therapeutic intervention I use with them, especially in suicide prevention and keeping them alive. I will never use, think of your parents, think of your family, think of the other things. Don't think about me. What would your, how can I go on without? No, I'd never want to make this about anybody other than the individual. So, and that's some of the language that I hear in your TikToks that I'm just like resonating so strongly with that make me want to learn more about you and your um, philosophy of suicide education and prevention. Um, maybe just a quick story and, I, and maybe a response from you. I was doing a live and one of the things that I'd like to consider my lives is me creating a safe space for a community to gather. Their live really isn't about me. I get to be goofy and play music and cook or whatever, but it's really about people knowing that I'm a safe place to come into and have conversations. And about two or three weeks ago, I was doing a live late at night and some of the, my followers were in there talking about another live that they were in. One of the commenters said that they were in a live talking about the death by suicide of one of their best friends. And the live that they were in was another TikTok therapist. And I'm not going to name them because I don't want to call them out. But that TikTok therapist said that they believed that suicide, death by suicide was a cop out. And this individual that was in my life was so activated, um, so upset that that kind of stuck with them for a long time. They came into my life and I had to completely validate their experience, their pain. I felt like I was undoing some of the damage that this other clinician, this other therapist, uh, certainly not, in, not engaging in therapy on a live, I don't think, but sharing language that was certainly harmful and not helpful to this person. I had a very difficult time understanding how any therapist anywhere could think that suicide, either an attempt or a completion, was a cop-out. That to me was incredibly misinformed. That to me was incredibly harmful for them to share in this live. And I, I tried to repair that as much as I could. And I think in the end, I, I hopefully did some good. Mm -hmm. um, what would be your what would be your response to this to this um, individual that might have had some harmful messages perpetuated on her? If I'm being honest, this makes me sick to my stomach mm -hmm. that that happened. And so much of my work that I do is addressing harm from other therapists. Uh. Um, so 
I would say that therapists are also human. We're subject to biases as well and misconceptions. However, as therapists, regardless of how well or poorly our programs trained us on suicide, it's our job to learn about it, challenge the biases that we have, and come to term with those. And, and I strongly believe that stigma often results from miseducation or not knowing about something. So to the person who experienced that, I am deeply, deeply, deeply sorry that that happened. Suicide is not a cop-out. Suicide is, it's complex, it's complicated. People are often in a lot of emotional pain and feel that that's the only way that they can escape from that pain or end that pain. Um, a lot of times I think it's not about ending their life. It's about that pain becoming so insurmountable and unbearable. Right. And one way that I try to get people to think about it is Try to imagine where you would have to be in order to feel like ending your life was the only option that you had. What amount of physical or emotional pain would you need to be in to consider that? So I, I don't think it's a cop-out. Um, and again, it's a very complex issue, but I'm so sorry that that happened and that people continue to stigmatize um, suicide in the way that they do. Thank you. Yeah, I was blown away and I joined you in the feeling of the sick to your stomach because in that moment, I just couldn't believe that, a, that a, another therapist would, um, would be that callous. Yeah. I was very angry. Uh, I'm sometimes known for going on a rant in my lives and I am trying not to go on run right now, but I was very, very, very upset. Um, I hope that individual has a chance to hear this podcast and to be revalidated and reheld. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, okay. So tattoos then you said can blend into a conversation about suicide education and prevention. How's that work for you? How do my tattoos blend in? Because I know, I mean, I can answer the question, but I don't want to interview myself. I've done a plenty of that. I want, how do, for you, how does suicide prevention and tattoos blend together? So I think that a lot of people have tattoos that have meaning. Um, so I've seen a lot of tattoos, um, like the semicolon tattoos and people kind of reflecting their stories through their tattoos, which I think is really cool. Um, and that's what I have. I have a semicolon on the yeah. left side of the semicolon are initials of people who are not here. On the right side of the semicolon are initials of people who still are here, who chose to continue that journey through that. 
So I very much relate with that, that idea of telling a story specifically through the tattoo. Yeah, I have a few of those um, myself. Um, so on my inner bicep, I have a tattoo that says, I'm not afraid, I was born to do this. Yes. Um, I have a sushi roll tattoo that says roll with it to roll. Oh my God, people. okay. Now we're talking tattoo, suicide prevention tattoos and food all together. I need to see the sushi roll. Can you, is it visible? It's on, it's on my leg. I can oh, okay. try to so, find a photo. Um, what's in the sushi roll? Is it like tuna? Is it, is it, is it hamachi? Is it salmon? I have to know like the food thing you've just, that's my Pavlov's bell. Definitely avocado. <laughs> avocado roll. Okay. Very. Oh, with salmon on the top. <laughs> roll with it. So, oh my um, gosh. I have that one. I have. And that for you is a suicide education and prevention tattoo. I think that it's. Um, it's very DBT. Yes. Uh, I think it's. So I have not incorporated it in the suicide education, <clears throat> but I think it's um, kind of part of the storytelling that I see a lot within the community. Yeah. yeah. And I have a lotus on my arm too. Tell me about the lotus. Uh, lotuses have to grow out of mud to push up above the water and bloom. So I think it speaks to overcoming adversity and facing challenges. I love that. And then you have other tattoos. Uh, yeah, I have 21. No kidding. Yes. So you have 20 more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I can't wait to get a new tattoo. That I is have. Okay. So future tattoos. I have at least two I'm prepared to talk about right now. How many do you have planned in the near future? Probably at least three to four that are floating around. No mm -hmm. kidding. Yes. Okay. Um, so there's, there are a cute, a few cute like food ones that I want to get like a lemon. Um, <laughs> and uh, I saw a hot air balloon design that I really like, but I come to my artist with a design and she just makes it way better than I. Oh, could I love. So you have one particular person that works on you. I do. Yeah. She's done probably my last eight or 10 tattoos probably. Um, and then, so I want to like hot air balloon tattoo for my travel. Uh, Cause I love to travel and there are a couple other ones and I don't know why, again, my brain just refuses to executive function. That's all um, right. It's early. So yeah, there's at least three to four that I have my eye on that I really want. Can I speak to the one that I see on your right hand? Yes. On your middle finger. Yes. Which has a lot, it's loaded with meaning, of course. Uh -huh. You have a lovely outline of a heart. I do. Tell me about this. So it actually does not mean fuck love. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. I wasn't going to go there, but okay. <laughs> so I've gotten, so working with teenage boys, that's always uh, what they ask me. 
Um, this is actually not that exciting. I, uh, (laughs) my friends in high school, my friend group, we all got the same tattoo. Um, wow. Middle finger. We all have the heart. Um, I, we're, I'm not in touch with them anymore. So, uh, last thing souvenir, I guess, from high school days. So what does it mean to you now? Has it retained its original meaning or has the meaning changed? Um, honestly, (laughs) if I'm being very honest, I forget that it's there. Like I, I forget that it's there. It's just kind of like, if anything, I think it represents being young and thinking. (sighs) My brother used to tell me all the time, he's a few years older than me. Like when you grow up and like become an adult, the people that you grew up with, I mean, there's usually a few that you stick with and still talk to, but the people that you're friends with now, like you grow up sometimes, oftentimes you grow apart, like trying to give me some brotherly sage advice. Sure. I didn't believe him. Um, I will not admit to him that he's right. I cannot and will not do that and satisfy him. So, um, yeah, I think it's just kind of representative for me now of being young and naive and um, just kind of that, I, I don't know how to describe it, but when I look at the tattoo now, and as you've asked me to reflect on it, I just get this nostalgic feeling of being that age and like thinking the world's ahead of you, like everything's great, like the people that you're with are going to be with you forever and young and naive, I guess. I love it. And I love the nostalgia. As you said, nostalgia, there has been a part of me that wants a Golden Gate Bridge on my body somewhere. So I met Kevin Hines. Have you? That name actually means nothing to me. You have to tell me who Kevin Hines is. Kevin Hines jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh yes, of course, the survivor. Yeah, so I was fortunate to meet him at a Department of Defense Suicide Prevention Conference. He is amazing. So just to put into context how rare this is, he jumped from the shallow end of the Golden Gate Bridge and his body entered at an angle. And that is one of the, he's like one-tenth of 1% of all the people that have jumped off the bridge and have lived. And he actually lives in Northern California he, I, just, if this is the same person, he works as a, as a teacher at a, either a middle school or a high school somewhere in Northern California and, and then does prevention education training. I think that's another Kevin, oddly. I think that's another Kevin. There's three Kevins associated with the bridge. Okay, there's, so tell me about your Kevin. There's Kevin Hines. There's Kevin Briggs, who was... Um, a law enforcement officer who patrolled the bridge and did a lot of suicide interventions on the bridge. And he saved another Kevin. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, He's a UHP officer. That's right. Yes, yes. Or a CHP officer. I'm sorry. Yeah, California High Patrol. Kevin Hines, he um, was experiencing symptoms of bipolar disorder and hearing voices um, to end his life. So he got on the bridge and this is the part of his story that sticks with me and is the most disturbing is that he was on the 
bus to go to the bridge, profusely crying, and he had made a pact with himself that if just one person said something to him, he wouldn't go through with it. Um, he was like standing on the bus because he thought maybe the bus driver was going to say something and the bus driver was like, hey, can you hurry up and get off? Um, he was standing next to the ledge crying um, and two different people walked up to him and asked him to take their picture. And I'm just like... <laughs> in well, he's in tears. Right. Um, so no one said anything. He jumped. He said the minute that his hands left the ledge, he knew he made a big mistake. mistake yeah. um, and that he, he jumped in. I think he did break his back, if I'm remembering correctly. And he said that it was just amazing, like some kind of sea animal like pushed him to the top and a Coast Guard boat found him, pulled That's him in. Right. And then he recovered, like he's not paralyzed, nothing. And he goes around now and he tells his story and he works on suicide prevention activities. I think the Kevin Hines that you're talking about and the person I'm talking about are the same person. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... So when I started doing suicide prevention and training in, in the Bay Area in California, I have my own experience with the Golden Gate Bridge, a lot of them, mostly driving across from Marin into the city, but also having some profound experiences standing on the bridge, not being actively or passively suicidal, but just thinking about those who had been in those spaces. And I've written a lot about this, actually, mm -hmm. and I have a... I have a, a really amazing, or I had an amazing experience where I walked out to the center of the span, which is the highest point in the arc, um, and standing there with my hands on the railing and just feeling the, the vibration of the road deck through the railing and holding that and just being very agitated. My, my fight, flight, freeze was in overload being overwhelmed. And I thought this is maybe on some primal level, what some of these other individuals had been experiencing in that moment. And I took my hands off the railing. And at that point in the span of the bridge, the big giant cable that swoops down between the two uprights, I'm six feet tall. I could reach up and I could put my hand on that amazing three foot, four foot diameter bundle of cables I put my hand up on that part of the bridge and it was rock solid. No vibrations whatsoever. Calm, peaceful. I could look out and see the Marin. I could see Alcatraz. I could see the city. Um, look up and I could see that giant upright to the south and the giant upright to the north. And then this big giant swooping orange cable in my hands up there. And I'm just really kind of experiencing that again, actually, in this very moment, how calm and how peaceful that was. And then I put my hands back down on the railing and just how energetic and how frenetic, frantic that energy was. So I regrounded myself on the top cable, held my hand there, and then I walked back. And there are our suicide prevention telephones every couple hundred yards across the span of the bridge. I have two rivets from the Golden Gate Bridge that I keep as souvenirs. And I have thought about getting one of those rivets tattooed on my body, if either that or the, the bridge itself. Um, uh, one of the pieces of data about the bridge that's fascinating 
is that out of all the attempts made on the Golden Gate Bridge, looking at that individual, where they lived and how they got to the bridge, uh, every one of them crossed the Oakland Bay Bridge to get to the Golden Gate Bridge to make their attempt. There are no reported cases of deaths by suicide on the Oakland Bay Bridge that drove across the Golden Gate Bridge to make their attempt on the Oakland Bridge. So there's a there's a fascinating energy in the Bay Area around the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. It's, and they've actually quit keeping statistics on either attempts or completions at the bridge because they found for many years people wanted to be the record. They wanted to be the record setter or the attempt setter. So uh, there's a lot of Golden Gate Bridge suicide prevention minutia and trivia that I learned just from studying the bridge and living in San Francisco. But I love that you met Kevin. What what did you learn from him? I'll make this more about you. What did you learn from him and his presentation? Um, I think that he just really solidified for me the importance of incorporating people with lived experience. Cause like, if we didn't, if we didn't talk to people who have attempted and survived, how would we know about the state of ambivalence many people experience? Uh, um, how would we know like what helps, what works? We think from a science perspective or a clinical perspective that an intervention we use or want to use is helpful and great and amazing. And then someone who's been through it might be like, actually, like, didn't do it for me. Right. So I think he just really solidified the importance of that. But also, you know, people do recover and uh -huh. there isn't shame in telling your story. It's actually really powerful. Um, and to see him reclaim that and use it to help others, I think is just really special. I completely agree. So the quantitative data, bits of data indicate certain things, but then the qualitative data, the narrative, like you're saying, is so important. I want to go back and talk about this idea of the state of ambivalence. I've never heard that phrase used before. Mm -hmm. So um, there's the state of ambivalence um, about whether they want to die or want to live. So I'm an assist trainer um, and we talk about that a lot. And uh, when we do training um, and we're teaching people about like doing a suicide intervention, uh, we tell them people don't have two choices. They actually have three. So the two that we immediately think of is staying alive or dying. Um, but the third choice that we get give them is staying safe for now, um, which takes the pressure off of like thinking about having to stay alive forever. But right. basically, um, if you are ambivalent, this is a pretty big decision to be ambivalent about. Like you want to be sure, right? Um, and what tells us that they're ambivalent is that they're still alive. They haven't done it. So I'm thinking of at least three or four of my active clients right now that are in the state of ambivalence. Mm -hmm. I kind of like the state of ambivalence. Yeah, I, you can work with it. Absolutely. So 
again, I think without people with lived experience, like how would we know about that? Right. And I hear a lot of people talking about good decisions, bad decisions, and taking away the good or the bad and just making decisions neutral. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the state of ambivalence is very much in line with that ideology or, or idea of taking away a value judgment and just being in the moment. And yeah, okay. You're so awesome. Thank you. I mean, I feel like I'm in one of your trainings. Thank you. So thank no, thank you. Um, I want to be mindful of your time right now because I do know you have a hard a hard po- uh, appointment. Where are we at? It's uh, eight o'clock here for me. Um, nine fifty-seven. And your appointment is at three. Or <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's do this. Let's pause. Okay. Let's come back. We'll have a commercial break. What song would you like us to play during the commercial break? I'll let you choose. Ooh, this is a good. What's your favorite song about hope? There's a few that I have. Um... Okay, you got two minutes. (laughs) Pressure's on. Um, oh, you should have heard Jess talk about her favorite song. She couldn't do it. Really? Oh, she could not do it. She caved. I really like Rise Up by Andre Day. And I also like Stand Up by Cynthia Arrivo. Okay. As well as Letter to the Free by Common and okay. Glory by um, John Legend. Okay, so I can't play all four of them, but I'll choose a snippet yeah. out of one of them. Um. <laughs> Why are you making me choose? No, and I'm not making you swear your allegiance to either either one of these. You're correct. You, you're not making me choose. Yeah. I I am putting undue um, <laughs> pressure on yourself. Under pressure. I'm gonna be free or die. I've been walking with my face turned to the sun. Weight on my shoulders, a bullet in my gun. Oh, I got eyes in the back of my head, just in case I have to run. I do what I can when I can. So let's jump back into the suicide uh, conversation. Um, and the tattoos. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what your what yours are, yeah. So I have a tattoo um, on one of my forearms, actually, that I got after my grandfather had passed away. Um, and it's a pocket watch, and he always carried a pocket watch. Um, and it says free but priceless because time oh, yeah. is free, but it's yeah. It's priceless. It's invaluable. You can't put a value on it. And I got the placing on my forearm because there was a time um, when I was younger, late teens or so, um, where I was dealing with the repercussions of a lot of trauma that was not being treated at the time. 
a very volatile, abusive relationship. Mm, wow. um, and I was struggling with suicidality. And I don't think that I realized that at the time, um, other than I knew I was just in such emotional pain and I needed that pain to end. It was becoming unbearable. Um, and I remember trying to communicate that to people. Um, well, one person, my mom at the time, I, I remember driving in my car, I was driving back to my apartment and I was like, I just get so upset sometimes. I just wanna hurt myself. And she was like, oh, don't do that. And I know she meant well, um, but it didn't necessarily open the conversation right. to what I needed. Um, so I did self-harm once, self-injure, um, and several years later, I was at a job. That was the one and only time that I self-injured, um, but I had um, a couple scars on my arm and a coworker walked up to me and was like, what happened to your arm? You look like a cutter. And oh, wow. I was just very, I was embarrassed. I felt seen and I knew that he was joking and that he didn't think that I had self-injured, but um, shortly after my grandfather had passed and I wanted to get a tattoo dedicated to him. So I placed it over um, those scars that I have. So um, in a way, my tattoos um, helped me to tell my story, um, but they also give me the liberty and freedom to share my story when I want to and on my right. terms. Yeah. I love, thank you for sharing that. What a remarkable person your grandfather must have been. He was. We were <laughs> kindred spirits, I think, in some odd oh. <laughs> And he carried a pocket watch. He did. What a gentleman. Yeah. Uh, not that he's not a gentleman. I think when I hear the word gentleman, I think of someone very formal and like dressed up and dapper and, and, and when i hear pocket watch that's what i hear <laughs> no matter how you're dressed if you're wearing a pocket watch there's a part of you that's classy and dignified and refined regardless of what you're wearing mm -hmm. i love tattoos um again i'm chicken to get too many <laughs> um but i do I'm have several it's fun uh there's the what's the meme on tiktok tiktok that says don't be sad go get a tattoo don't be sad no. go get a tattoo i sing that to myself like every day and i'm like i <laughs> i just want to go get a new tattoo <laughs> <laughs> i have a, a friend of mine who's going to draw me an uh a california grizzly bear wrestling a utah honeybee <laughs> so be wrestling back and forth <laughs> with like no that. no apparent victor uh yeah i'm into it now that i have given myself freedom to decorate my body um I'm way okay with tattoos and so creative. And, and so the interesting thing about the tattoos and therapy is a lot of people on lives I see 
I want to be a therapist, but I also want a tattoo. Can I have a tattoo and be a therapist? Clearly, your name, your screen name indicates, yes, indeed, you can do that. So many of the amazing therapists on TikTok have a lot of tattoos. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you? Uh, did you have the tattoos first or did you become a therapist first or a counselor first? Um. So I got my first tattoo when I was 16. Oh, my on the, the heart on your, on your finger? Actually, no. I have a tiger on my leg. Wow. Yeah. Very uh, Sylvester Stallone. Okay, 16-year-old Janelle. Woo! Uh, we'll celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it was a jumping off point. Yes. So, um. I had a few, but I had initially always been intentional about like not getting them, getting them in places that I could hide for work. Uh -huh. um, so when I had my first job as a case manager is when I had gotten my first wrist tattoo, um, which is a feather with some birds. Oh, I love that. I love how that feather turns into the birds. Thank you. Um, it's supposed to remind me to keep moving no matter where I am. So I got that and then I got the bicep. I'm not afraid I was born to do this. Um, so minimally visible, like clearly not inappropriate. And right. so I had a really misogynistic supervisor at the time and he called me in the office and was like, you are a role model to these kids. Like it's inappropriate for you to have tattoos that show. And I was, there were people that we worked with, um, residential staff that had full sleeves, some people that had former gang tattoos, all kinds of stuff. And I was just like, but I'm getting pulled up about this. Okay. So if I did. If anything, I would think that that would be maybe some credibility or a way to connect with these people. Right. So I kind of kept that same mentality until I started working with the Army National Guard. And the whole time at that job and also when I was with the Army, I was completing my master's degree. Um, and then when I was with the Army is when I got uh, my forearm and... I don't, what's this called? I can't think of it. The other side of your forearm? The other side, the opposite side of my forearm. Um, far arm, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> um, Outer forearm. <laughs> oh my gosh. I got um, both sides of that arm tattooed. And I was like, okay, I am going to wear three quarter sleeves now. And then I just stopped. And no one said anything. So then um, at my new job, I interviewed. And then my first day, I was like, so what are your thoughts on tattoos? And he was like, I don't mind them. Obviously, if you're like meeting with certain people, just use discretion. Um, and then I started in private practice. And I've been able to have my tattoo show. I have my septum pierced. Um, yeah, I just did. Did that? Did that hurt your nose? Surprisingly, it did not. So really? there's something in the 
the nose in the septum called the sweet spot that apparently I think it's like devoid of nerve endings right there or something, but it's a very small piece of flesh that if your piercer does your septum correctly um, and hits the sweet spot, that it's actually not painful. Okay. So. Uh, that's good to know. Uh, noted. I've <laughs> So, um, yeah, wow. I've adopted the frame of mind that my piercings and tattoos have no bearing on my, my knowledge, my education, my training, my ability to do my job. Um, so I'm very intentional at this point in my career to only work at places where I can be myself and not sure. have to hide or cover uh, my tattoos and such. So that speaks to your desire for vulnerability. I'm sorry, not vulnerability. Well, maybe that, but certainly a desire for authenticity to yes. bring your whole self to your practice. Authenticity is so important to me. I, I don't understand um, the idea of like being a blank slate. <laughs> I, it, it just never made sense to me. Um, so yeah, I think that having tattoos in some ways helps show my clients my humanity. Um, to some, it might make me more relatable. Um, but yeah, I think breaking down these norms of what we consider professional and acceptable is a side goal of mine. Thank you. I really push back on the idea of a blank slate. And I think, you know, certainly having a forward-facing, you know, personality or persona on some level, on many levels on TikTok, so many therapists let us into their personal lives, some more than others. Um, I consider my life kind of an open book. So I will share anything kind of, I mean, up to a point, mm -hmm. but I know a lot of my clients follow me on TikTok and I'm way okay with that couple of them have even said you are more relatable and you're more personal you're personable because i can see into your life i'm like cool that's why i'm doing it yeah i enjoy social media um, and making educational content and being able to bring our humanity into it so that people do see that we're human i yeah. i think that sometimes based off of things that people have said to me and other therapists that I'm not sure people even look at it, look at us as humans, because it's almost like they think because we become therapists, we reach this like level of emotional mastery. And we just know, like we can control all of our feelings and respond rationally in every single situation. And that we're always wearing our therapist hat. And like, no. Shouldn't no. you be sitting underneath a bow bow tree or bow, <laughs> in a lotus position, you know, reciting some mantra somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate being able to show our humanity. And especially like, there are times when I'm in session and clients will make a comment like, oh, but not like you, like you have it all together. 
And in my mind, I'm like, girl, if you only knew, if you only knew. So that's why I share the silly stories, like the bacon falling out of my scarf when I was getting a client from the waiting room. And okay, like, that's hilarious. It was, I was just like, this would happen to me at this point. It would. There was one time I was leading a client in a grounding session, the 54321, uh-huh. and I was eating French onion sun chips prior to our session. And when we got. <laughs> When we got to the three smells, they listed the sun chips as something that they smelled. And I was like, I'm glad it wasn't like Brussels sprouts or fish or something that was like really stinky. But I just, yes, I like being able to be human and remind people that we are human. Okay. Two, two, two things about food. Favorite ice cream flavor. And what dish are you known for in your friend group? Oh, those are very good questions. Um, Favorite ice cream flavor. So those kind of cycle for me, um, but there's this creamery near my house that has a honey graham flavor that is so yummy. Um, So I love that. Uh, My controversial favorite ice cream flavor is mint chocolate chip. Wait a second. I didn't know there was such a thing as a controversial favorite ice cream flavor. There is. There is internet discourse about how disgusting mint chocolate chip ice cream is. I saw a meme about it the other day that was like, you might as well just eat toothpaste. Clearly, I have been living under a rock for a long time because I have yet to see this meme. So that would be my controversial one. And then my classic would be tracks. Okay. I wonder how these people feel about thin mints. Especially in the freezer. The best. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Now I want thin mints. Right. By the way, Girl Scouts of America, very pro-transgender. Oh, that's good. They decline and send back donations from anti-transphobic and or from transphobic and homophobic uh, donors. It's very public. I love that. I love action when organizations don't just make a statement, but their actions actually back up. And the Girl Scouts certainly do. Yeah. So then now I want to go buy Thin Mints. Uh, And one of the things I used to do was make uh, shakes for the kids, really thick ones. And I would make Thin Mint shakes. Mm, That sounds really good. Tillamook vanilla bean ice cream, which is my favorite ice cream flavor, a whole milk, and a th- half a stack of thin mints, and off you go. And there were happy people in my house when I made thin mint shakes. All right. So in your friend group, what's your favorite dish to make? What are you, what are you known for? There's probably two. So one is mock chu, which is a side dish with corn, onion, cherry tomatoes, um, diced bacon, and green pepper. And it is to die for. It is so good. Um, Is it like a little salad? I mean, I guess technically. So um, I cut the corn off of the cob and then I um, have the cherry tomatoes 
I diced the onion, bacon, and green pepper. Um, so I first saute the onion, um, drop in the corn, green pepper, and cherry tomatoes and bacon, and then just saute it until it's cooked. And so good. You got so it's cold it. or warm? Warm. Warm. So not really a salad, I guess. It sounds yummy. It Could is. you put it on rice? If you wanted, yeah, I suppose. I eat it as a side dish. So. Side dish, okay. I want to address race. I identify as half Wonder Bread, half vanilla ice cream. I'm that white. <laughs> yes. And I always want to make sure that my whiteness is acknowledged. And I try to use my privilege as a way to empower and magnify and signal boost. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about having BIPOC creators on my podcast. And I, I hesitate to ask because there is Google and there's all these things, but as a white clinician, what, or is it even appropriate for me to ask and push back if it's not, uh, I did work at a K through seven with a lot of black and brown kids and 90%. So I did learn a few things, but there's always more to learn. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you can share that can help or give some insight or, or warnings or whatever you think might be relevant to race. Yeah. So I think that we need to recognize racism um, as the violence that it is and that it's not just interpersonal interactions. It is also institutional and systemic. Segregation really was not that long ago. They show you pictures of MLK in black and white to make it seem like it was forever ago. It's really not. Racism has biological effects on people. It, look up the weathering effect. Um, it predisposes us to a ton of health issues and life expectancy. So I really think like people need to grapple with and understand that. With indigenous populations, you know, one of the significant contributors to them having the highest suicide rate out of any race or ethnicity in our country is systemic racism. Yeah. So I really think that needs to be acknowledged. And if you're working with BIPOC clients, you should ask what their race means to them, what is the significance and how that impacts their experience. Um, because it's race is not something that BIPOC can just not think about. I think one example that really highlights this is when people get defensive about white privilege and they're like, well, I grew up poor. The first disadvantage that you think about is class. Not, not race, right? So if the first disadvantage you have to think about is class, that is pretty illusory of white privilege because you don't even, race isn't even on your spectrum. Having those conversations, being open about it, learning. And I also think extending grace, like if you're working with BIPOC and you're not BIPOC, that there may be mistrust. It may take more work to prove that you are trustworthy 
Um, and it's not necessarily specific to you or because of who you are as a person. There's just so much historical trauma that contributes to that. Something that I see a lot in suicide prevention and even in mental health um, is that our interventions and our approaches are norms on white people. And we need more diversity in our interventions. We need to find out what works, but that doesn't look like going into those communities and telling them what we have and just culturally adapting them because these communities already have significant healing practices that have benefit um, and because of institutional barriers, maybe just don't have research to make it evidence-based, right. quote unquote. I think listening is also just a really important thing. That's Rex uh, with one of his sneezing fits. There's one sneeze. Do we get five more from Rex or? So we had two. We'll see. We'll. You gonna do another one? He's looking. He's glaring at me. I, um, I sneezed prior to the second part of this recording, and they were loud sneezes. I'm glad I got him. <laughs> you and Rex could have sneezed together. We could have synchronous sneezing. Yes. Thank you um, for that. Um, my favorite cliche that I love to hate, it's probably like a catchphrase and I just can't help myself. But when people are talking about trauma and <laughs> uh, someone, a creator made a video the other day that was talking about how it's not necessary to remember aspects of the trauma, there's still work that can be done to work towards healing. And I commented and was like, the body remembers. <laughs> That's why. Oh, wait a second. The body keeps the what? Score. The body keeps the, did you see that TikTok? The body no. keeps the score. The body keeps the score. Um, yes. So that's my, that's my cliche. The body, the body remembers. remembers. Where do you notice that in your body? I love that. And it's true. It is. I think that these cliches become cliches because they are true. That's, yes, I think so too. Otherwise, yeah. <sighs> Thank you. Thank you. Like, no, no, no. This has been a true pleasure, a true gift. Thank you for the labor, the unpaid labor, the heavy lifting. Uh, thank you for the work that you do as a clinician that is both seen and unseen. I know there are hundreds of hours that no one ever sees. Um, thank you for the creative work you're doing. Black Lives Matter. Black Trans Lives yes. Matter. Yes, they do. And um, I'm just very grateful right now for the time we've had today. Me too. Yeah. It brightened my Monday. This is the best week of February. <laughs> Hands down. And you started off. There there probably has never been a better Monday for me in my entire life than interviewing you. Thank you. Just before we do this, I just, again, we did this for Orlando, but it's for the victims, for the families, and for all of you. Everyone has their issues from struggling to cancer, to depression, to whatever ailments you know mental or physical that we deal with or emotional so you know my prayer for this song is that it's just filled with a spirit that just helps to heal and to encourage and to inspire 
and that we do that for others. So hopefully, as we lift our voices or our hearts right now, we can do that for other people, for each other in this room, and for those in Orlando. <clears throat> Broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round, and you can't find a fighter. But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out. Move, move mountains. We gon' walk it out.
Spread a little 